Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things, so again Pilate asked him, Are you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison, and the (coughs) insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you to the king of the Jews? Do you want me to release you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace that is the (coughs) praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, How the king of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And then they then they mocked him. They took off the purple robe, they put on his, own clo- on his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexandra and Rufus, were passing on, on his way from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. They crucified him with those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lam Sankbakthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many, of, many other women had come, up with, to, had come with him to Jerusalem or also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Amathia, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus was already, had, already di- had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body and wrapped it in linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, good morning. My name's Pete Stedman. I'm the Senior Minister here at Norwest. Great to have you with us. Uh, particularly to all our guests, welcome to you. Uh, just a word to you, here at Norwest, when it comes to preaching and teaching from the Bible, we try to preach and teach from the Bible, which means to say that everything that I say today, I hope you can see I take straight from the text. Because if that's right, then it doesn't matter what I think. We believe it matters what God thinks. My encouragement to you, you uh, guests amongst us and our regulars, is that we have our Bibles open and make sure that I'm not making it up. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, will you uh, be with us now as we come to sit under your word? Father, in the power of your spirit and through your word, will you convict us, change us, and help us see who Jesus is? We pray this in his name. Amen. Friends, I'm not sure how much you know about Islam, but my guess is you know enough to know that there's some significant differences between what Christians believe 
and what Muslims believe. And perhaps the most significant difference when it's all boiled down comes down to the difference in opinion as to what happened to Jesus and how he died. So this is the Quran's teaching about Jesus' death from chapter 4, verse 157 and following. It's on the screen. They neither killed nor crucified Jesus, but it was made to appear so unto them. Indeed, those who differ about him are in doubt about it. Their knowledge does not go beyond conjecture. They did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised him unto him. Allah is mighty and wise. You know, within Islamic theology, it is unthinkable that a holy prophet, as Islam see Jesus, would undergo crucifixion. Allah would not allow such a wondrous prophet to undergo such a torturous failure. And yet what is unthinkable in Islam is the centrepiece of Christianity. God has indeed revealed himself in this world and most potently through a crucifixion. But you've got to know that Muslims are actually right to an extent, they are right to be scandalised by the cross. Scandalised that God could do something beautiful and victorious through a Roman death sentence. How is it that an instrument of torture and brutality and failure became a symbol, as it is today, of glory and victory and love? Friends, that's what we're going to be seeing today in Mark 15. If you've been with us over the journey over the last three months, you'll know that the name of our series has been Crown and Cross. And that's because one of Mark's major themes, one of the biggest ideas that he wants us to grasp from his 16 chapters, from his gospel, is this new idea of real kingship. Now, you'll remember this from the series because the word used for this in Mark's gospel is Messiah in the Hebrew or Christ in the Greek. It's the same word and it means the same thing. It means God's anointed king. Jesus Christ, not a surname. Jesus, God's anointed king. The Messiah, God's anointed king. It's one of Mark's key ideas. We've seen time and time again, haven't we, that this king that Jesus says he is, this Messiah, this Christ, is nothing like anyone was expecting. And today, finally, it culminates and it confounds and it crashes together in the cross upon which Jesus is crucified. Friends, here's what we're going to see today, if you've got your Bibles open. We're going to see the king and a question. We're going to see the king and his worship. And we're going to see the king and his throne. You'll notice it was a long reading. We're not going to be looking at it all, but we are going to look at some key points that jump out. Let's start with the king and a question. We pick up our story in verse 1 of chapter 15. See that? what we see is that Jesus finds himself before the Roman prefect or governor of the region, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Now, the reason that Jesus finds himself before Roman authorities is because whilst the Jewish leaders of the day had their own courts, they did not have the power, they did not have the right to put anyone to death, to kill anyone. That power lay with the Romans alone. So they take Jesus to Pilate. Can you please look at verse 2? Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You know, in a sense, this is the question 
the whole book of Mark asks of Jesus? It's a question of identity. Who on earth are you? Are you a king? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one that will bring the rescue of God's people? Now, whilst Pilate certainly couldn't have known what indeed he was asking here in the moment, it is the question of the moment. It is the question that has been begging for an answer all the way through Mark's Gospel. It's the question of the identity of Jesus that in a sense has been shrouded from us and the people all the way through the Gospel. You do remember that, right? So in Mark 1, Jesus starts casting demons out of people. This is what we're told. It's on the screen. Jesus also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. That's weird. Then Jesus heals a man who's had leprosy for years. We read this. Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. That's weird. When Jesus' disciples start to work out who Jesus is, uh, this is what Jesus says to them. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, that's weird. Three times and more, actually. All the way through, we're sort of left scratching our heads and wondering why. If, if Jesus is the King, if Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, why not come out and say it? Why not let everyone know? And so during his ministry, before Jesus heads to the cross, Jesus is secretive, if you like, about having this title of Messiah or King applied to him. But that all changes now. And that started last week with James when he was preaching through Mark 14. You'll remember this if you're here. Jesus stands before the trial of the Jewish leaders at the Sanhedrin and they say to him, Jesus, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says for the first time and so clearly, I am and you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Mark 14. Now Mark 15. Pilate says, are you the King of the Jews? Jesus says... You would do well to consider that. That's his response. It's an affirmation and confirmation, but it's actually one that carries a personal challenge to Pilate within it. Look, here's the question. What's going on? Why has Jesus kept his identity quiet here for 13 chapters and now in these two chapters, 14, 15, not once but twice, once before Jews and once before Gentiles, Jesus starts to talk about who he is clearly. What's changed? Here's the answer. The timing has changed. You see, now and only now will people rightly understand what being God's king is all about. Because Jesus' claims to be God's king is about to be linked forever with the most unking-like action ever. Crucifixion. You see, if Jesus publicly claimed to be the Messiah whilst he was doing miracles and healings and casting out demons, everyone would have thought, wouldn't they, that the Messiah had come to do miracles and healings and cast out demons. But that would have been deeply misleading. You know, the only time, the only time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus allows himself to be designated as God's King is in the shadow of the cross. Now, why is that? It's because Mark, who wrote this for us, wants us to know that whatever sort of king this Jesus is, you have to consider his kingship in light of his cross. You have to consider his kingship in light of his death. Here's the thing we're being shown. You can't know Jesus. You can't know Jesus if you consider him apart from his cross. 
Any understanding of who Jesus is that does not emphasize the cross upon which he was crucified is deficient. It's a big call. Oh, it's Mark's call. Here's the thing. If in your mind, when you think about who Jesus is, if the main idea that comes to your mind is that he was a good man or a good teacher or a political activist or a revered prophet or a man who did powerful signs and wonders, if those attributes, whilst perhaps true, if they are the prevailing idea in your mind, then you don't know him rightly. You don't know Jesus as Jesus wants you to know him. No, Jesus wants his identity as the Messiah, the Christ, God's King, to be deeply enmeshed with what is about to happen to him on a Roman cross. Are you the King of the Jews? That was the question. Well, let's see what the answer is. Let's now have a look at the King and his worship. Please look at verse 16. So Jesus has been handed over by Pilate and he's taken into the custody of those who will do the crucifying, the Romans. They were very good at it. And so begins a time of worship of Jesus. You can read about this in verse 17. The soldiers put a purple robe on him and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Then they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Finally, now that Jesus has revealed who he is and why he's come, that he's the king, we see worship commence, don't we? He is clothed like a king. He is crowned like a king. He is acclaimed like a king. But, of course, this is perverse worship. This is mocking homage. You do see the irony of this section, right? Because everything that happens to Jesus here is the opposite of the way you would treat an earthly king. Kings were blessed, but crucified people were cursed. Kings were honoured, but crucified people were ridiculed. Kings were dressed in flowing robes, but crucified people were stripped naked. We're about to see that happen. Kings were crowned with gold. Jesus was crowned with thorns. What is going on here is meant to be the opposite of everything that kingship was about. The worship that we read here is both perverse and obscene. And actually, when you think about it, the picture that Mark paints for us here is actually very dark. But when you think about it, It's only one dark picture that's painted for us across chapters 14 and 15. No, blindness seems to envelop this whole chapter. So it starts back in 14 with Peter. You remember Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, who when the cock crowed, denied Jesus three times. He's blind. And then another disciple, Judas, betrays Jesus for a bag of silver. Then the Jewish leaders condemn him as worthy of death. Now, chapter 15, Pilate has Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. We have Roman soldiers mock Jesus. We see the crowds call for a murderer to go free so that Jesus will be killed in his place. Did you notice that blindness abounds? No wonder the worship of this king is mocking. It's interesting, the darkness that is about to fall across the whole land has already fallen across the hearts and the minds of almost all the people there. And Jesus is all alone. 
And then our story, friends, our sermon series and Jesus' life come to an end. So we read in verse 22, see that? They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh. He didn't take it. They crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see who would get what. Jesus is crucified. The king upon his throne. And some hours later he died. We read that in verse 37. See that? With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. I've got to say, when you first read this, it just seems like this great mistake has happened that somehow Jesus started out with the best intentions but somehow things have got out of control along the way. That so often happens, doesn't it, with political and religious affairs. They've now snowballed. Uh, Jesus now finds himself in a place where he never thought it would end up. Now, have no doubt that's exactly what the disciples thought was going on. But you have to know that that is exactly the opposite of actually what's happening here. Jesus both knew and planned this to be the way. This is no mistake. This is the blueprint. Now, how do we know that? Because we're shown it in verse 34. See that? Now, in verse 34, Jesus cries out four strange words, which no one really knows how to pronounce, but let's have a go. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which we're told means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds like a reasonable cry for a condemned man on the death chair, doesn't it? It's become known as the cry of dereliction, and what it sounds like to us is Jesus is crying out in rage and confusion to his father. Here's what you may not know. These words here that Jesus cries out, Jesus isn't merely saying, Jesus is quoting. See, Jesus here is actually quoting a very famous song. A song that was written about a thousand years earlier. A song that was all about what would happen to God's Messiah. The song was a prediction of what would happen to God's King in the future. And Jesus now starts shouting out this song. And it's from Psalm 22. And Jesus knew this psalm because every Jew knew this psalm. And Jesus also knew what this psalm went on to say. I'm going to read to you. Listen to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night... And I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. 
That's remarkable, right? That was written a thousand years before the crucifixion, which we just read about, where they pierce his hands and his feet. They mock him. They divide his clothes and cast lots. Friends, what Jesus wants us to know is Jesus knew that this would be the way it would go because with his father, he planned for this to be the way it would go. Jesus came to die. God's Messiah, the King of the world, came to die. And the King is finally enthroned. Not on a throne, but on a cross. And the question has to be, why? Why would Jesus and his Father plan for this to happen? It's terrible, it's tragic, it's evil. We're given the answer to that as well. Look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Can I just say, that seems like a really strange piece of information to put there with no comment, unless you know a bit about the temple and the curtain. You see, the temple was the place where Jews would go to meet with their God. And at the temple, there was a room that no one could enter. The room was called the Holy of Holies, and it was believed that that was where God himself lived or or dwelt. No one was allowed in there except once a year, and only one person, the high priest, went in. And he went in there to pay for people's sin. He went in there to, to make atonement that God would pass over people's sin against them. And outside that that room was a a curtain that divided the room from the world, if you like, from the other parts of the temple. And and that curtain symbolised the great gulf between God, who is holy, and the grabbiness of people and sin. And this curtain was no ordinary curtain. The curtain was more like a wall. Uh, We are told that the curtain was around the thickness of a man's hand. That's 25 centimetres. The fabric was that thick. It wasn't a little breeze that tore this curtain in two. And yet we're told that this curtain that was as thick as a besser block was ripped in two from top to bottom. Notice the direction from the heavens to the earth. You you do see what that shows us, right? It, It shows us why Jesus died. Jesus died to tear the curtain. Jesus died to bring God to people and to bring people to God. It means that no high priest ever needs to deal with your sin because Jesus has done that. Jesus has died in our place. Jesus has died on our behalf and he's taken God's anger at me and my sin on himself so that as I trust in Jesus, I never need to feel the wrath of God that I deserve. Have you ever wondered what's God really like? No, not what the church says, but what is God really like? Here's the thing. You'll never see it more clearly than right here. What is that? God is gracious and God is loving and God is sacrificial. And God himself is prepared, is prepared to become an utter disgrace so that broken people like me might be made perfect and glorious for him. I wonder if you're starting to get a bit of an idea as to why Islam rejects that Jesus is God. Because here we see that God is revealed not as one who demands submission, that's what the word Islam means, to submit, but God is actually one who himself submits to his creatures even, that he might find a way to perfectly forgive them for their sin. 
Listen to how John Stott, the, uh, uh, the British theologian, has described what happens here. Any contemporary observer who saw Christ die would have listened with astonished incredulity to the claim that the crucified was a conqueror. Had he not been rejected by his own nation, betrayed, denied, deserted by his own disciples and executed by authority from the Roman procurator? Look at him there, spread-eagled and skewered on his cross, robbed of all freedom of movement, strung up with nails, pinned there and powerless. It appears to be total defeat. If there is victory, it is the victory of pride, prejudice, jealousy, hatred, cowardice and brutality. Yet the Christian claim is that the reality is the opposite of the appearance. What looks like, and indeed was, the defeat of goodness by evil is also, and more certainly, the defeat of evil by good. Overcome there, he was overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor. And the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. You know, uh, our series has been called Crown and Cross. And for 12 weeks, we've been wrestling with who Jesus is and what sort of king is he and what does the Messiah do? And now we see it clearly and powerfully. God's king has come to defeat the enemy of God's people. But it wasn't Rome, like everyone thought. It was sin, that great and real and pervasive and powerful desire that lives within every one of us and that tells us that we should live our own way and tell Jesus to get stuffed. Jesus died on a cross so that those who repent of that innate innate desire that beats within all our breasts, that those who give ourselves over to him and follow Jesus will find forgiveness for their sin. And of course, it's not merely the fact that Jesus died, but you'll know how the story ends if you've ever heard the Easter story. Mark 16, 1 to 8, Jesus didn't stay dead. The tomb was empty. He rose from the grave. Why is that? Because death has no power over those who do not sin. Well, let's finish, friends. Uh, You'll know that in Mark chapter 15... There's two responses to this story of Jesus. We've seen the first, haven't we? It's, it's the blindness of the many. It's, it's the darkness that enfolds the majority. They mock, scorn and spit, for they do not see who Jesus is. But there's a response in this story that we haven't seen yet. It is the response of one man, actually, and the most unlikely of men. Uh, this man is not Jewish, but Roman. He's not religious, but pagan. He's not neat, but rough. He's actually a dealer in death. In fact, he's actually responsible for Jesus' very death. And you can read about him in verse 39. See that? It is the Roman centurion charged with the responsibility of crucifying Jesus. Now, you've got to know, being a centurion, uh, this man has seen a lot of death. This man has inflicted a lot of death. And yet, in the moment that he inflicts death upon Jesus, he finds life. See that? Did you notice that the very first person in the Bible 
after Jesus' death to get Jesus' identity right is not a priest or even a minister or a Jew or, or some sort of moral upright person. It is a rough, rough, hardened, murderous Roman soldier. And Mark is actually giving us an insight into who will be able to find their way to God with Jesus. It's anyone who recognises that he is God's son. So they're the two responses in the story. Okay? But there is a third response here, and it's not in the story. It is a response to the story. We're not talking about pagan soldiers. We're not talking about blind religious types. This is a response to the story that is very common amongst your average Borkhamhills Hills church-attending person. And I'm talking to the regulars here now, to those who find our way out of our homes with our kids each week to turn up and gather as the people of God. And this response to the story I want to speak to you about now, I was reminded of as I was reading some of the writings of A.W. Tozer. Some of you will know his writings this week. This is what he says. Listen to this. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. Okay, he's speaking to Christians here. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of Mansoul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. You know, in the room today, there are those here who are blind to Jesus. And they're sitting here right now thinking that everything we've seen in the Bible and everything that I've spoken about is madness. Great to have you here. Uh, We hope uh, there are people like you here every week. uh, Spectators, if you like, sceptics, pushing, prodding and asking questions. Great to have you here. There's also people here who today, like that soldier, see Jesus and his death on the cross and for whatever reason, they know they need to respond. Something today from this passage has has touched their heart. They know it's true. They want to investigate more. They want to give themselves over. They're here as well. But the vast majority of us, friends, are people who've heard this story a hundred times. We know it. We quite like it. And we like being reminded of it. We know that Jesus died for us. We gave ourselves to him once. And yet what Tozer says there just really unsettles us a bit, does me. Because fundamentally, don't most of us, if we're honest, live as if we want to be saved and yet really just allow Jesus to do all the dying. We know Jesus paid the price, but then if you're anything like me, so often you live almost fundamentally unchanged by that. And to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and to myself, I say, repent. We, together, we need to look at the king who kept nothing back from us to buy us for himself. And every morning as we wake, as we feel the pull of the world to forget and neglect our saviour and our king, we must bow our knee. We must believe and follow and serve. 
Do not forget your king. Do not forget his cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, so often we think that your word is hard to understand, we're not sure what's going on, and yet really, Father, if we just take the time, it opens up before us. Father, there are those here today who are hardened and blind. Will you, by your spirit, Father, bring light to darkness, that they might see your Son and ask more of him? Father, for those today really struck by Christ, will you give them the integrity and the hunger to inquire, to find out more, and ultimately to bow their knee and give their lives to him? And then, Father, for the majority of us who know this and believe it, yet to our shame, so often live as if it doesn't really matter or that it's merely some story, will you forgive us and help us live new lives as new people living for a new kingdom with a new saviour, a new king? Will you make us more like your son? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.